Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Before we begin, before we hear from our guest speaker today, let's go around the room as we always do and introduce ourselves. I'll just go ahead and start. My name is Roy. David. Michael. Andre. Manuel. Kay. Edgar. Joe. George. Brian Phillip. Lee. Tom. My name is John Russell. Steve. Joe. My name is Bill. Richard. I'm Jerry. I'm Brian. Doug. Ruby. I'm Bobby. I'm Trumpin. Katwan. David. My name is Ray Dyer. I'm Clint. Jack. I'm Tom Brown. My name is Michael. My name is Glenn. Peter. Jim. Hi, my name is Paul Zach. Uh, my name is Harley. And my name is Michael. <coughs> Our guest today is Larry Robinson. Larry has been practicing meditation since 1969. He's a student of both Zen and Vipassana traditions. A retired psychotherapist whose work focused on eco-psychology, Larry has served on the Sebastopol City Council since 1998, including two terms as mayor. His passion is the restoration of the oral tradition of poetry. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Thank you. Han Shan, that great and crazy Chinese poet a thousand years ago, said, we're all like bugs in a bowl. I say that's right. Every day, climbing up the sides, sliding back down, over and over again. So, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, moan, cry, feel sorry for yourself. Or, look around. Greet your fellow bugs. Say, hey, how are you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> well, it's a great privilege to be here in this lovely bowl with all you beautiful bugs. <laughs> and it's a special um, privilege to have two very good friends here. Um, my dear friend and mentor and teacher, Doug Von Koss, um, who was really the, the man who introduced me to the oral tradition of poetry, for which I have an undying gratitude. And Baruch Golden, um, Baruch and I sat next to each other for two years at Spirit Rock in um, the Path of Engagement training program there. And <clears throat> it's actually the Path of Engagement that I'd like to talk with you about this morning. Um, you know, these are certainly interesting times we're living in, aren't they? You know, it's an old cliche that the Chinese consider that a curse. I really consider that a great privilege to be alive at this time and probably the most dangerous and exciting time in all of human history and to be able to play a part in this transformation that's going on, this transition. And it is a scary time and... Um, <coughs> Yet, in the midst of all that, there is possibility, too. What we see around us, what I see around us, is the collapse of all of the pillars of our constructed world. All of the institutions that we um, have assumed are permanent and take for granted institutions of government, of religion, of education, of business, of social life and education, health care, all of these 
structures are breaking down around us. And in the midst of that, we see people either waking up in extraordinary numbers or desperately trying to push the snooze button and try to go back to sleep to pretend that nothing is out of the ordinary, that if we just um, reestablish control again, like clamping down on that well in, in the gulf that's erupting, if we can just get that capped, we can go back to sleep again and um, watch television or drink ourselves to death or drive our SUVs or maintain all the patterns of behavior that are really destroying the fabric of our culture and shredding the, um, the very fabric of the web of life. You know, Denise Levertov, who's one of, one of America's great, great poets, has a poem she called Beginners that expresses kind of both the terror and the hope of a time like this. She says, But we have only begun to love the earth, only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How can we tire of hope? So much is in bud. How can desire fail? We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy, only begun to envision how it might be to live as siblings with beast and flower, not as oppressors. Surely our river cannot already be hastening into the sea of non-being. Surely it cannot drag in the silt all that it's innocent. Not yet. Not yet. There is still so much broken that must be mended. So much hurt we have done to each other that cannot yet be forgiven. We have only begun to know the power in us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. So much is unfolding that must complete its gesture. So much is in bud. So the challenge is in the path of engagement, the bodhisattva path, which I believe that everyone in this room is, is engaged in, is to hold that contradiction of the terror and the hope. As Wendell Berry says, you know, to be joyful though you have considered all the facts. <laughs> Isn't that a great line? And that right there is, is the essence of the path of engagement. To approach whatever it is with joy and possibility, but not be in denial of how fucked up things really are. And we each have a particular gift that we've come here in this life to bring. And it's no accident that you and I have been born into this life, into this earth at this particular time. You know, sometimes I have this sense that there are two, two vectors at work in our collective history. One is this great trend toward awakening consciousness, and another towards destruction and environmental collapse. And these two are coming together. They're converging at the edge, at the edge of a cliff. And I think we're just inches away from that cliff right now. It's hard to know exactly where we are. But my sense is that we're very close to it. And that's the point where we can choose whether as a species 
as a culture, as individuals, we are going to shift into a higher level of consciousness and awaken to a new relationship with each other and with all of our communities of fellow beings, or whether, like most species in the history of evolution, we drop off the edge. And it will come down to a conscious choice, I believe. And this, this may be a little far out, but I sometimes also sense that if you believe in reincarnation, which I'm not sure I do, but sometimes I do, <clears throat> at some point in the next 20 or 30 years, population experts say that the human population is going to peak. And it's, it's, the curve is, is, is approaching the vertical. But at some point, in every species population, there is a peak and then a dramatic die-off. And we're approaching that peak. We're approaching the peak of what this planet can sustain. And so it may be that when we reach that peak, every soul who has ever been in human form in the history of human life will be alive at the same moment. And that may be the moment where we make that choice, whether we're going to evolve or turn off the switch and give the cockroaches or bacteria a chance. <laughs> I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I, um, I hope that we make it. I think that we have a very good chance, even though the odds are, are strongly against us. But what will make the difference is the choice that each one of us makes in every day of our lives, whether to be engaged in the world in a transformative way or to contribute to the destruction based on our heedless consumption. And you may know what that gift is that you came here to deliver, or you may still be wondering and searching for it. Sometimes you never know, although the people around you see it. Some people live their whole lives giving the gift and never knowing what it is. Other people struggle to find a place to deliver it. And there's a huge burden in carrying that, that gift like a UPS driver driving around aimlessly trying to find the address where this package belongs. You know that feeling? That your particular gift has not been received. <clears throat> William Stafford talks about a way to recognize that gift. He says, There is a thread you follow that goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about the things you're pursuing, and you have to explain to them about the thread. But it's hard for others to see it. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt and die. You suffer and grow old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding, but you never let go of the thread. And that thread is different for each of us. But I would suggest that for all of us in this room, one strong fiber of that thread is our practice. Our practice that when we enter into it deeply enough reveals the gift of impermanence, <coughs> of emptiness, 
and of no self. You know, all our suffering and the suffering that we inflict on the world is all rooted in this false belief in the self, that there is such a thing as a separate self. You know, in Buddhist psychology, they say that (coughs) ego is simply the illusion of separateness. And our attempt to reify, to concretize, to make something permanent that never could be permanent just creates the unnecessary suffering. And what are we here to do except to love each other and to appreciate this beauty within us and around us? Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, you know, tell me about your religion. And he said, kindness, kindness is all that it is. One of the poems that Doug taught me was titled Kindness, from Naomi Shihab Nye. And she says, before you can know the true meaning of kindness, You must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all that must go so you know how great the desolate landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you can know the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with the plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you can know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it until your words grip the thread of all sorrow and you see the full size of the cloth. Then you know it is only kindness that means anything anymore. Only kindness that gets you up in the morning and ties your shoes and sends you out in the world to purchase bread and mail letters. Only kindness it lifts its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for all your life, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Can you feel that one? Is there anybody here who has not known that kind of sorrow, not lost someone you've loved. And maybe the gift in that sorrow is the awakening of the heart of compassion. I'm looking in that corner and I see Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshwar, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Well, here is the cries of the world. The one with a thousand hands and a thousand ears. And those thousand hands are our hands, aren't they? And they're our ears to hear the cries of the world and to take action when we see suffering in front of us.
many years ago, before I got into um, electoral politics, which was never it was never my ambition. Um, when I turned fifty. Um, my friends, and you were one of them, did a, a ritual for me. And part of it was asking me what I see for the next stage of my life. And I said, well, I, I see myself um, doing more meditation, more retreats, writing more poetry, seeing fewer clients, spending more time in silence. And... Um, that was my plan. <laughs> and before I knew it, um, I fell into a profound depression. And what, as a therapist, I learned about depression is that it's a call from the soul to pay attention to something. And I spent some time in the wilderness on a solitary vision quest up in the Sierras. And I packed into this lake, um, was late in the season, um, hunting season had just closed, and this lake I found, um, hunters had been camping there and trashed, totally trashed the place. I walked around the lake looking for my perfect campsite to sit in quiet meditation with a question, what should I do? <laughs> And I passed one campsite or another, just filled with garbage. And I think, what assholes? How could they do this to this beautiful place? And I just kept walking. And I found a beautiful campsite and set up my, my tent and my pad and my cushion. And for several days I sat there just with this question. What? am I supposed to do? How can I deal with all this suffering I see in the world? And then I heard this voice saying, Pick up the trash, Larry! <laughs> I learned if I don't listen to that voice, my life turns to shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I immediately got up from my cushion and started walking, and the next campsite I came to, there was a... <clears throat> A 50-gallon or 20-gallon, whatever, little big black plastic garbage bags. So, perfect validation. So I spent the day walking around the lake, picking up the garbage, and got the message. So the next day, I packed the garbage out. And But what, what I took away from that was the garbage is always whatever is right in front of me. It may be that homeless person on the street who just needs someone to say, Hi, how are you doing? Or it may be that development project that is going to destroy this wetlands and somebody needs to do something about it. So the lesson I took was wherever it is, right in front of me is where my action needs to be. Not I don't need to go off to some third world country to find some worthy project to do. I don't need to go to another community. There's enough suffering, enough that is broken right in my community that must be mended. And enough hurt that I have done to people in my life that I need to mend. So that's what led me into politics. And it became for me a spiritual practice in itself. It was um, so painful for me to do it as, as an introvert. Um, I mean, 12 years ago, I never could have sat in front of a group like you talking. Um, being involved in politics against my will forced me to develop 
an extroverted side that I could call on when I had to. Um, but, you know, tonight I'm going to go home and sit in my garden and, <laughs> you know, just in, in solitude. And that's, that's where I find renewal. Some of us sign renewal in community, some in solitude. And that's really what determines whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. Um, but I found that <clears throat> if I approached engagement in the world in an appropriate way, um, it didn't have to be intolerably painful. It could be a source of growth and transformation for me. And I gave, put a lot of thought and meditation into how to do that in a systematic way. And what I came up with um, that I want to offer to you is a fourfold practice. The first is something that every meditator does or learns practice, tries to do, which is to pay attention. And I can't tell you how important that is as a foundation practice for everything in life. But when you're engaged in social change work, political change work, the ability to pay attention both to the overall gestalt of the situation, to the people that you're dealing with across the table or beside you, and to what's happening inside you at the same time. That multiple level attentiveness is so important to... Um, Avoid the trap of naivete and cynicism. I mean, naivete and cynicism are really two sides of the same coin, aren't they? I mean, both are based on, on a false kind of certainty that we can really know the truth of anything. I mean, naivete assumes that the world is safe. <clears throat> I can put my head into the mouth of this tiger or I can pick up this rattlesnake or I can trust this person in spite of what my gut tells me. And cynicism says, don't trust anybody. Everybody's out to get you. The world is a dangerous place. Both those are nonsense. Rumi, I hope I don't diverge too much here, but Rumi says, <clears throat> if you want what the visible world has to offer, you're an employee. If you want the unseen world, you're not living your truth. Both wishes are foolish, but you'll be forgiven for forgetting that what you really want is love's confusing joy. And that love and that joy come from engaging joyfully in the suffering of the world and paying attention, paying. That attention is the price of admission to the greatest show on earth. That's what you pay, attention. So the second, the second principle of this fourfold path is showing up and by that, I mean bringing everything that you've got into the world, not hiding your light under a bushel. Just because you've been rejected a thousand times, just because everybody you've ever known has told you, we don't like that part of you, that is unacceptable you still have to bring it forth for the sake of the world and for the sake of your own wholeness. And showing up means when you see some garbage in front of you, pick it up. When you see an injustice around you, speak up. When you see someone being abused or mistreated, speak up. 
when you see homophobia or racism or ageism or sexism, speak up about it. That's showing up. The third is to speak the truth. And I don't mean be tactless, but I mean listen to what your heart is telling you and don't be intimidated and don't manipulate your words to protect something that you think is you, your image. There is a power in truthful words. Gandhi based his whole Indian independence movement on this principle that he called satyagraha, which means literally grasping the truth. And he knew that when you speak the truth and you act from the truth, there is an ineluctable power that becomes available to you. And when you speak less than the truth, you diminish that power. And when you tell a lie, something of that power, of that light, goes dark. And you can recover that power and that light by speaking the truth, even if you have not spoken it before. And there are consequences for speaking the truth. Don't be naive about that. But consider the consequences of not speaking the truth. And the final principle I would suggest, which may be the hardest, is to let go of the outcome. What we're taught, non-attachment. And therein lies the liberation. If we can dwell in the place of uncertainty and actually cultivate insecurity and uncertainty in our lives, we can find our freedom. There's a wonderful old story that you've probably heard of this Chinese story of this peasant who had this magnificent horse that was the envy of all his neighbors and they'd say to him oh what a lucky man you are to have such a horse he would say maybe well then one day the horse ran away and the neighbors said oh how unfortunate the man said maybe and then one day the horse came back leading a whole herd of wild horses into his corral. And the neighbor said, Oh, how lucky you are. And he said, Maybe. And then the man's oldest son was thrown from one of those horses while trying to break it and broke his leg. And the neighbor said, Oh, how unfortunate. And he said, Maybe. And then the king's soldiers came by to draft all the young men into the army but they couldn't take his son because his leg was broken. And the neighbors whose sons had all been taken away said, oh, how fortunate you are. Maybe. So in this time of uncertainty, we don't know what's going to happen. What we do know is that we can show up we can pay attention. We can speak the truth. And there is a freedom and a power in letting go of even our sense of self, even the need to survive. Nanao Sakaki, great Japanese poet who died I think this last year, um, 
was during the Second World War, he was a, uh, a sergeant in the Japanese Army, a radar technician. And he was actually the one who spotted the Enola Gay. That's the uh, U.S. bomber carrying the atomic bomb that um, devastated Hiroshima. He was the first one to spot the Enola Gay came, coming over the radar horizon. <clears throat> that made such a profound impact on him. He dedicated his life to working for nuclear disarmament and watched nuclear arms proliferate and still kept his faith. And somebody once came to him and asked in great anxiety, now, now how are we going to survive the nuclear arms race? He just chuckled and said, no need survive. Think of that as a mantra to liberate yourself. No need survive. After all, does anybody here think we're going to get out of this alive anyway? So why not be joyful though we have considered all the facts. And I know sometimes it can seem like our individual efforts are so insignificant in the face of all that we have to do to create a world of justice and peace and safety for everyone. So I want to offer you this poem. Ecclesiastes says, For everything there is a season. You say, It's tax season. It's allergy season. It's baseball season. I've got to season the steak and the barbie. Besides, I don't have time to change the world. Goethe tells us of the genius the power and the magic in boldness. You say, but what difference could I make anyway? The foxes are guarding the hen house. The juggernaut's out of control. We're all just snowflakes in the wind. The mountain asks, which snowflake falling will be the one to send down the avalanche, changing this entire landscape? And just to put things in a historical perspective, the chaos that we see growing around us is well, the Heart Sutra, as you know, says form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Chaos is the Greek word for emptiness. It's out of the emptiness that the form emerges, that chaos is, is the mother of the universe. Emptiness is what holds everything. And part of our practice is to learn to surrender to that emptiness and be at peace in it. Over the last 30 years, a new science has emerged, the study of chaos or complexity theory. And some of the interesting principles that scientists of complexity theory have observed include um, the idea that patterns replicate themselves at higher and higher and smaller and smaller um, levels of abstraction. 
And in between those levels, there are periods of instability, of uncertainty. But as things become more complex and the order breaks down, a new level of order emerges at um, at a higher at a higher level of organization. And in those times of chaos, they say that initial inputs can have a disproportionate input um, imp impact on the outcome, which is where the showing up comes in. In times of chaos, people of goodwill, strong mind, good intention can shape the outcome. And this is one of those times where it is so important, not necessarily what we do, but that we do. And just being a bodhisattva in that chaotic soup is like being a seed crystal in a supersaturated solution. You drop, you know, you drop a, a seed crystal into a supersaturated solution. The material and solution precipitates out around it in the shape of that crystal. So you can give shape to what is emerging next. Probably the oldest poem that I know speaks of this is from Sophocles and is translated by Seamus Heaney, a modern Irish poet. <clears throat> but he says, human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. The innocent in jail, beat on their bars together. The soldier's widow faints in the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call that miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a god speaks from the sky, it means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its turn. Thank you for your kind attention. We do have time for some questions or comments. Um, I'm sort of hesitant to say this. For, I mean, first of all, I thought it was wonderful. And I appreciated it deeply, particularly as because I've just had a diagnosis of a serious mental con condition with uncertain results, and I found it very supportive. So thank you. And I wish you health and consciousness and ease as you go through that journey. Yes? I don't know why I asked this, but it comes to mind. What sparked your interest in poetry? Hearing Doug recite a poem learned by heart. You know, poetry was ruined for me in high school and college. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Billy Collins has, has a poem I can remember it <clears throat> all of it talks about <clears throat> tying a poem to a chair 
and beating it with a rubber hose to get it to you know. And that's, that's what they did in high school and college. So I, I just avoided it. And, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, I don't remember what the poem was, but it spoke to me because this man had taken it into his body. It became part of him. And when it came out again, it carried something of his soul with it. And, and I got it. And I got poetry for the first time. And then I started hearing other people reciting poems in that way. And it just made a whole lot more sense to me. Does that make sense? That's a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> what can Doug um, reply to that? <laughs> I, I don't want to put you on the spot of you. Thank you for not putting me on the spot. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Yeah, thank you for a luminous talk. I really, uh, the room is quite still and full of tension. Um, my, uh, I have dragged this question out with different teachers because there continues to be an enormous stumbling block in my encounter with Buddhism. Um, you know, I know I'm not my ego or my persona, but what is it that seeks within me? Um, what is it that chooses to learn poetry? You know what? Who is the chooser? I mean, who do you deal with in psychotherapy? This is, um, I mean, I, I believe I experience an identity within myself and within other people. Um, but uh, the Buddhist prescription just, I don't find myself in, in that. So I appreciate it. Last week, um, I was up in, in Mendocino. I don't know taking a workshop on ceramic glaze chemistry, which is something I'm just discovering to my great fascination. But um, in the evening one day, I was sitting on the bluff overlooking the ocean, watching these waves roll in. And um, I saw very clearly that who I am or who we are is that energy that is moving through. You know, the wave is not separate from the ocean. It's, it's, and the water in the wave doesn't move. The energy moves through, creating the wave as it goes. And that's um, what I feel myself to be, is that energy wave moving through, um, the form that is certainly temporary. I mean, you know, our spleen replaces every cell in it every 24 hours. So there's, there's nothing permanent in our spleen, and yet it's an essential part of our body. But everything in us is changing constantly, and I find nothing, nothing permanent. Um, And that is a huge relief. I don't know if that answers your question at all. I appreciate the attempt. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I just want to say that um, I can only speak for myself, but the silence as I sit here um, is not from lack of attention or interest. I'm, I feel like I just ate a huge meal <laughs> um, digesting, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Mm, you're very welcome. Isn't silence delicious? And to sit in silence in a community like this. And when I, when I first sat down in this cushion in this room, I, I've never been in this room before, but I felt I am, I'm home here. It just felt so wonderful to sit in silence with you all.
What a privilege we have. Yes, um, I was. Just, I just noticed that. I think I've heard that poem before. The last thing I remember is just the one snow. Which is the snowflake that will fall to cause the avalanche? And I just noticed that you didn't say who wrote that. I was just wondering if that was a poem that you wrote, and also that that image is for me is so powerful that we never know what our action, you know, what action will be like that snowflake. And I just. I wanted to say that's a beautiful poem. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is mine. And <clears throat> I actually was in the mountains after, um, or in the middle of a, a snowstorm or light snowfall, and saw a branch suddenly break from just the additional weight of, of one more snowflake. That was that was the tipping point. It's real. Yeah. There was another. I have one yeah. question. Um, what was the greatest strain in your political life to your spiritual practice? Resentment and anger. <laughs> um, Sitting, um, having to listen to people come to the podium and threaten and yell and um, and have have to simply receive it. Um, is is very challenging. Um, so the practice of Tong Lin and. Are you familiar with that? Taking in the darkness and breathing out the light, which is totally opposite to the New Age kind of way, is very helpful to me. And the practice of loving kindness. When um, people uh, who have different agendas, um, on several occasions people who have different agendas betrayed causes that we were working on together. Um, I remember one night coming home from a council meeting, just furious and sitting on, this was in, in December, um, sitting on my cushion and just burning up. My body was just sweating. I took off all my clothes, opened the windows, and I was just sweating, just burning up with this rage and just all these revenge fantasies. And, <laughs> and But I resolved to sit there until I could let it go because I was not going to push it under the rug. I, I sat there most of the night um, until I got to the place where I could actually forgive these two people. And um, I had a profound... A moment of enlightenment at that point and then I had to um, thank them deeply for the gift that they had given me <laughs> and I'm still grateful to them for it <laughs> but it doesn't mean that anger and resentment don't keep arising, they do but then, then it's grist for the mill Will you be able to stay with us during the social? Yes, I'll be. I'll be happy to stick around. Well, I think you definitely have a home here. <laughs> We'd love to have you come back. I would love to. Thank you so much for today. You're very welcome. So we have time for announcements. Do we have our, our host? You can begin. Yes, I am the host, and uh, there was someone brought in some food, which is great. And uh, Larry did, right? I harvested some of my plum trees, sir, plums and pluots. They're not quite ripe, but they will be in a couple of days. We're going to do some breads and some other things as well. And so uh, I think we're supposed to go to the drill, but help yourself with tea, and then when you're done, please wash your glass with warm soap and water. Um, there is a Donna bowl. Um, 
the suggested donation is five hundred dollars, but give what you, if you care to, or what you care to give. Um, some people need to twelve thirty to head out for lunch at the front door, and I think that there's a sign sheet if anyone wants to put their name on the list. There's on the credenza. There's a list that people can sign sign on, sign in, and um, I think that's it. Thank you. Um, <coughs> stuff that's coming Saturday, there's a week from this coming Saturday, it's going to be, it's, it's in the newsletter, I'm just reiterating it, it's, it's called the Lazy Man's Nature Experience. <laughs> We're going to lead a, a, a small, I'm going to lead a hike in Mount, Mount Tam on the Deep Ravine Trail is the name of it. It's a very beautiful hike, it's all downhill, and we're going to lunch in uh, Simpson Beach. And then we're all going to just drive up, back up. So, <laughs> so uh, I encourage people to, to read the newsletter and get the details. And if you have any questions, call me on the newsletter. I'm Clint. Thanks. Mm -hmm. sure. yeah. My name is Michael Murphy. Uh, I am, among other things, the coordinator of the annual retreat, our annual retreat. And registration is now open. It's happening in September the 17th through the 19th at Bhattrapani Institute, which is a lovely Tibetan retreat center in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, it's a retreat that blends traditional elements of sitting and walking meditation, but we also have a lot of interactive time, time to get to know one another. So um, <coughs> could I see a show of hands of people who have been to one of our retreats? So if you could just keep your hands up for a moment. Those of you who haven't, and who might have a spark of interest, just notice who's been, and if you feel like hearing a little more about the experience, um, you know, just ask somebody what they're, oh, there are a lot of people. Um, and I, it came to my attention yesterday that on the registration form, I got the dates wrong. It says the 17th through the 20th, it's actually the 17th through the 19th. So I will correct that, but just be aware, if you take a registration form today, it's, it's the 17th through the 19th, not through the 20th. So Friday evening through Sunday afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just curious if anyone is here for the first or second time today. Any new comments? Ruby. Well, and a reminder that on the 25th of July, uh, we will not be meeting here on Sunday the 25th two weeks from today. There's a ceremony going on that uh, people uh, <coughs> in the building are going to be involved in, so we won't meet on the 25th. Anyone else? I did not hear mention of the Dharma Bowl. The Dharma Bowl? Oh, the Dharma Bowl? Well, he mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, I missed it. Okay. Gary Snyder says, The rising hills. The slopes of statistics lie before us. The steep climb of everything going up. Up as we all go down. In the next century, or the one beyond that, they say, are pastures, valleys. We can meet there in peace if we make it. To climb these coming crests, one word to you, to you and your children. Stay together. Learn the flowers. Go light. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, 
without too much attachment or too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.